today we start a new study of the book of Genesis. So we'll be in the book of Genesis for the next several weeks. And so we get to go back to the beginning. Um, interesting thing to do after studying the Gospels. And as always, there's a lot of interesting things that we can kind of connect to our focus group. And we will be going back to the Gospels today and also talking about a few things here in the very first chapter that lays the groundwork of a Christian understanding of the world, but also recognizing that it, that it was the origin story for the Jewish people as well. And this is just so early in the story that, you know, Moses and those who put this down in writing, they had an inkling maybe of what God was going to do, but they didn't understand all of it, and they certainly didn't understand the story of Jesus yet. But they did record what God revealed about the creation of the world, and we're going to study this today in Genesis chapter number 1, and a little bit of chapter 2, and then, you know, I can't think of a better, you know, resource to talk about the first couple than Ken and Jean Travis, can you? So Brother Ken's going to take that next week. And then problems come up in Chapter 3, so I'm probably pretty good fit for that. I create lots of problems. So we'll talk about the first sin in Genesis Chapter 3. Next week is the first couple, Adam and Eve. And But today we talk about the first day, Genesis, or the first week. The first day, we're going to focus on the first day, the sixth day, and the seventh day. We're going to skip over. We'll briefly talk about what happened on days two, three, four, five in creation. A lot of you may be familiar already with the creation story. As we get into this, one important thing to recognize, I'll let Ken expound on this next week, is that chapter one is an overview of the seven days. When we get to chapters two and three, we will be giving much more detail, filling in some detail of things that happened on those days. I do not think that Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 are separate creation accounts. They are complementary creation accounts where we go back and we talk more about the specifics of what happened on those seven days. So here is the overview of creation. And we'll start off, as we said, focusing on days 1, six and seven and not even all of that a couple things to have in mind today how does god's personal involvement in creation matter today there's an old old story not everybody even believes the book of genesis to some people it's just a bunch of fairy tales they've gotten written down um, is it just like all the greek myths or is there something there that we really need to understand about then so we can understand today. And the next thing is, what does it mean that men and women were created in God's image? And we're not going to fully develop that idea, but it's stated here and it's really important. And it's something we're not going to we're not going to talk a lot about men versus women, but we are we do see the the in, just in passing the mention of the creation of men and a few things about that. But one thing we see, and you probably have heard before, is that we, unlike the animals, were created in God's image. So what does that mean? Why is that important? We'll focus on some other things in those passages as well. And then what can Christians learn from the establishment of the Sabbath? The Sabbath day, a very Jewish thing. Understanding that the seventh day of the week is Saturday. The first day of the week is Sunday. The scriptures are very consistent about that. So the Jewish Sabbath is Saturday. Christians worship on Sunday. So what is this about the seventh day here in the story, and what should we take from that as Christians who are not under the law of Moses? So there's a lot to break down there, and so we'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, quick summary of those seven days of creation. On day one, we see light is created. The light is created. There was already darkness. God creates the light. We'll look at that in just a minute. Day two. The sky and the oceans are divided from each other. Before that, there was the world was all lit water. And it sounds like it was all liquid. I can't tell you a lot about it because I wasn't there. 
And we're given just kind of a few little details, but the atmosphere is formed and separated from the oceans on day two. Day three, dry land is created. So land rises out of those waters. And so now we have sky, sea, and, sky, sea, and land. I think I said that right. Um, on day four, heavenly objects, sun, moon, and stars are created, or at least appear. Um, day five, birds and fish are, God creates those to populate the earth. Um, wow. So I left out um, vegetation, and I think that's also on day number three. Um, and then on day six, animals and mankind are created. All animals, including men, are created on day six. We're going to focus on the creation of man today. And then, of course, I only have six items listed because nothing is created on day seven. God decides to take a break and declare all he has made is good. And we'll take a look at that as we get to the beginning of chapter two. All right. Oh, I forgot to update that title. It's right on your papers. The title for our list today is supposed to be, What a Difference a Day Makes. <laughs> Last time it was resurrection. Today is about what a difference a day makes. All right. So maybe by the time I record this, that will say the right thing. What a difference a day makes. Something on the first day, something on the sixth day, something on the seventh day. Let's see what we can glean out of the scriptures as we jump in this morning. <coughs> We'll start with Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was an evening, and there was a morning, one day. Well, God was there from the beginning. God has no beginning. Notice, in the beginning, God is already there. And one thing we understand about God is he is eternal. We are not. I mean, in a sense, our souls are eternal. Um, but our physical bodies are not. We are born at a certain time. And we came to exist at the moment of conception, or in the case of Adam and Eve, at the moment of creation. But we were not before our beginning. Okay? So in the future, yes, we have an eternal future ahead of us, whether eternal life or eternal judgment. But we began. Our world began. God didn't begin. He was already here. He was always here. So that's one of the mind-blowing truths about God, that he is timeless. And he preceded every creature and every part of our world. He was already there, and he made our world. So first thing he did is he created the heavens and earth. So I said he created light on the first day, but the fact is, well, here's the thing. It says in the beginning he created the heavens and earth. This isn't attributed to the first day, because how can you have a day until you have light and darkness? So, he does create everything, and then he begins to kind of shape it, and then he adds more. And so you think God, just to, you know, just get this picture of God sitting on his cosmic potter wheel, you know, his potter's wheel, and he's just, the thing is that he was able to create something out of nothing. That's the thing. If you or I want to make something, a craft or a piece of pottery, we're going to have to go to the store and at least buy some clay, right? So the amazing thing is God just speaks creation into existence. And you can see when it comes to the light, it's the spoken word of God that makes these things happen. God speaks and things come into existence. And that's the power that God has. You know, I think in our creativity, and our ability to make things out of things, we reflect our creator God. But we don't have the same ability. You know, we can't just snap our fingers, you know, a new car appears, wouldn't that be nice? Or a new house or a new outfit, right? We just don't have, we can't, you know, 
Yeah. You know, we can't go like all fonts and happy, happy days and make things happen by the snap of our fingers, unfortunately. We don't have that power. But God does. And so, in the beginning, there's heavens and earth, but the earth is all water, and there is no light. That's the interesting thing about it, that there's this dirt, there's stuff, but even if you were there, you couldn't really see it because there's no light. And so that's what happens is, and it's interesting, this cycle that occurs, that first God says, let there be light, and the power of his spoken word, and we remember things like John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So understand that as God created the world, Jesus is present, and Jesus is a part of creation, because Jesus is God, and Jesus also, he did not have a beginning. Jesus' earthly life had a beginning, but Jesus existed long before Bethlehem, and that's a nice thing to keep in mind at this time of year. Jesus is involved in the creation because God created nothing apart from his powerful word. When God speaks, something happens. And in this case, an entire world was created. And often, people object to the universe and the idea that, that maybe we're the only ones here. And, and I don't know for sure that there's no life elsewhere in the universe. If God wanted to put life on another planet, he certainly could do that. And some people say, well, if God created all this, and it's just us here on planet Earth, he wasted a lot of space, is the way the argument goes. But I would say to you that looking at the universe around us, is a reflection of how big and great our creator God is. And if we only had a little tiny planet to live on, maybe we'd only have a teeny tiny God. But not only do we have, and let's think about it, some of you could watch nature shows for days, couldn't you? About this in this country and this, you know, in this part of the world and the rainforests in Brazil. All the wonders of this world by themselves are amazing, but it goes way beyond that. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, sometimes I believe we think our God is just not big. Our, our God is not small. That's small. I wrote a number on the board there earlier. And uh, That's a big number. Is that yeah, your bank that's balance? A, that's a big, big number. Uh, but according to space.com, the number of active stars in the universe, that's the number, they're of that order. The numbers of that order. What is that number? Well, I see 24 zeros. 24 zeros. Oh, yeah. Did you figure out what that should be already, Brother Ken? I'm looking at thousands and millions and billions and trillions and quadrillions. Yeah, I know. Is that, that might be one septillion. I'm not sure if that's the right prefix or not. You don't see that number again. I can't even say it. <laughs> well, it'd be like September 7, right? So when you get to the 7th, I think it might be septillion, like quadrillion. Trillion is three. But you know, trillion has three sets of zeros after it, right? Yeah. Thousands, millions, yeah. well, billions. Well, I'm not sure it quite matches up that way. Our sun well, that's is a big star, number. All right. Our sun is a star, so you get the idea of how vast. Right. right. I mean, God could have just made our sun. He could have just made one star. That's all we need, right? But then we wouldn't have this night sky that he goes on to create on day five. All right? And so the fact is, if God only made that to reveal himself to us and how great and mighty and powerful he is, that would be reason enough. He doesn't need another reason to create this entire universe that stretches for billions of light years in either direction from us. That we, even if we have the capability, wouldn't have time to travel to the outermost reaches of the now God is not a problem. He can go anywhere he wants, but we are limited. But God has created all of this with but a word. And to think that we think our problems are too hard for him. That he I just don't know what I'm gonna do, God. I've that's got this problem. And God's like, well I, I've made everything you can see in the night sky and on this earth. 
in a moment just by speaking into existence. And I did all this in seven days. And we think God can't solve our problems. He can. Sometimes he lets us walk through trials. But don't for a second think that God has a limited capability because he, with what seemed like no effort at all, created everything you can see with your eyes. And of course, he even made the light you see with here on day one. So it seems that there was already darkness when God created the heavens and earth. So it's a very special thing here that he creates light, introduces something new to the mix. And notice it says the light is good in verse 4. Light is always used as kind of a, a symbol of, of what is good and, and what we ought to be involved in, whereas we use darkness as a symbol of acts that are shady, that are immoral, that are evil. And so it's not necessarily in the case here where the light and darkness is like light is day is good and, and night is bad, but we do understand that <coughs> darkness provides cover for people who want to do what's bad and get away with it. Darkness is a place of hiding, light is a place of revelation, and things are revealed. And in that sense, light is a very good thing, and we are called as children of light. And that's one connection I'll make here in just a moment. But here, looking at this, did you notice darkness is listed first, even after God separates the light from the darkness? It was evening, and there was a morning one day. This is something that any time we look at the account of the cross, recognizing, remember that they, the Jews, to them, the Passover started at sundown, not at sunrise. They always had evening and then morning. That was their cycle. All right. So this is described in a very Jewish way, isn't it? This is the way the Israelites understood the day cycle. You had night first, you actually slept first, and then you got up and went to work. Okay. Some of you would like to erase that. Right? Wouldn't you like to wake up at night and go, oh, good, it's time to go back to sleep, but I'll work tonight. Some people actually do that. But that was kind of the way they thought of it. They thought of evening, beginning of the day, and, and, and the, the, the light time being the rest of the cycle and the day ending at sundown. And that's kind of the way it's described in verse 5. And to be fair, there was already darkness. God introduced the light. And it may have depended, um, you know, if the earth was rotating at this point, which is not clear because in verse 2 it's formless and empty, you know, depending where you were in the world. And, and, and of course, at this point, there's actually not a sun. So I guess you can't really think of it as a traditional day. But there was a time of darkness and a time of light, and that counts as the first day. And that's about as good as I can say. There was some kind of first day. There was light and darkness. And I think God understood that we were going to need both. Okay? Um, you ever, you know... I don't know if I can think of a specific example, but they say lighting is really important for our cycle as beings. Um, if our cycle gets off, like even daylight savings time can really throw us off, can't it? <laughs> like, you know, why why is it bright so early and why is it dark so early and, and things throw us off and why am I walking to my car and I can't see my keys anymore? Oh, it's because daylight savings time ended and I'm out here at seven o'clock and suddenly it's dark. So we are very sensitive to those cycles. We were designed with those cycles in mind. God created light and darkness first, and then he created the sun-moon cycles on day five, and then we could create it on day six. But God made a world with us in mind. That's what I want you to see here. That everything God does, he had the whole plan in mind, even on day one, and he was going to do it on day five and day six. God is very orderly. God's not haphazard. He had us in mind. Everything he did, he did it for you and for me and for every creature that was going to dwell on the earth. So we see light and we see that light is good. We see here that most of all, I want you to realize God was present and involved. Let me go back and hit this on verse two. The spirit of God was hovering over the waters, wasn't it? God was there. And I want you to realize not only is he, is he, present in our world that he's involved. He's involved here. He's still involved today. Does God still answer prayers? Does God still rescue his people? Has he done that throughout the history that we've studied in the Bible? So it's very important because there are some people that think of God like he's some kind of cosmic watchmaker 
and he sets it all in motion, and then he just went on vacation for a prolonged period of time. No, God is very patient, and he intervenes sparingly, but he does intervene, and he does answer prayers, and he is continually involved in our worlds. Understand, just like he was there from the beginning, God was present and involved in our world, and he is still here today to hear us and to help us. And that's a really, really important takeaway here, that though the times between his interventions may be long, God is with you. Isn't that the message of Christmas? God is with us, and he was here with us at the very beginning. So don't miss that, because that's a very encouraging truth, isn't it? That God who created the world is, to this day, still here with us. And he created a good world. In orderly steps by the power of his spoken word. So that takes us to our cross reference here. And we'll look at First Thessalonians chapter 5. There are a lot of places we could have talked about how uh, light and darkness comes into play. And I would, out of these verses, maybe encourage you to even look up Second Chronicles 16. That's the story of King Asa, who gets scolded because he hires mercenary armies to defend Israel. And God had rescued them in the past. And the prophet comes to King Asa and says, King Asa, you know what? The eyes of the Lord look to and fro through the world, looking for those whom he can strengthen. And you could have relied on a God who is present and intervened instead of taking things into your own hands. And the king was bitter after hearing this, but God said, you should have trusted me instead of your own resources. And that was, a, that was well, well after the seven days of creation when God said that to King Asa. But for us today, I do want to focus on our applications. And here in 1 Thessalonians, we talk about the imagery. Here's what Paul had to say, uh, chapter 5, starting in verse 5. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day. See that, that, that identification that Paul makes. Remember, the light was good. And God calls us to be light in our world and to be good. And there is a time to sleep. But there are times you shouldn't be sleeping, right? If you're sleeping at the wrong time, you know, it probably hurts the pastor's feelings. Or... It's uh, not that you ever do that. Or, you know, sleeping on the job can get you fired, right? Sleeping behind the wheel can get you killed. There's times not to be asleep. And in the church, I would encourage you, even though we may be getting closer to the end of our race, it is not time to sleep. Let's remember that we're children of the day and share God's life as we have opportunity. And you better armor up because it's tough out there, as you guys already know, wearing the breastplate of faith and love and the hope of salvation as our helmet. Because God is not destined us for wrath, but for salvation. So that is our calling. And light is a powerful image from the creation and in our world to remind us of who God wants us to be. The God who created the light called you as his servant if you're a believer. And let's remember that at all times. So with that in mind from First Thessalonians chapter 5, let's talk about the first thing we see. Light is shined on the first day. Our world is created and God has given us light. He is the source of light. What does James say? He is the, the giver of every perfect gift. And it comes down from the heavenly lights, right? So God is identified with light and goodness. And that is something that we want to take away from this creation story. Light shines. Now we're going to skip over creation of many things. One of the important things to understand is that God creates vegetation early on in the process, and animals not until day six. So God gets a lot of things in place. So even the heavenly bodies are created on day five. Again, so that we would have those regular cycles in our world, where the sun, the moon, the stars would come up at their appropriate times. And then we get to the sixth day. Now, when we get to verse 26, animals have already been created. And again, this is a summary. It's a lot more details to come on that. But let's jump in to verse 26. And at this point, God said, 
Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, with the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. A lot of drama to come there, but not today. Just a summary. All right. God blessed them. And said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, birds of the sky, every creature that crawls on the earth. And continuing on to verse 29. God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth, and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, for every creature that crawls on the earth. Everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and morning, the sixth day. So here we are, the end of the sixth day. Not the entirety of the sixth day, because God's been very busy. And he has all, of course, some of these creatures on prior days. The birds created on a prior day, the animals on day six prior to the creation of man. And it's only when God gets to the creation of man that he talks about creatures created in his image. So there is a separation here between mankind and animals. And although these days we, we talk about, to some degree, someone being a dog mom or a cat mom, there's this false equivalence that's sometimes made between animals and people that isn't really true. That people are not on the same level of animals, even though uh, you know you, you just don't you don't drop in when you're feeling bad to see the vet, do you? Because animals have different physiologies, but the most important thing that sets us apart from the animals is we have a conscience. Animals are purely instinctual creatures. And we have something within us. We have, a, a, we have been created with a certain nobility that we don't always live up to. And a certain, um, we have a desire and an understanding of things beyond what the animal kingdom has. And we have been created special. And it's very important for us to understand that because what we have been fighting for several generations is the thought well, we're just animals, so if we act like savage animals and treat us, treat each other that way, it's just fine. And it's true that men are capable of great savagery, but it's also true that God has called us for more than that. Yeah, the soul of animals don't. Yes, we have a, a soul. Um, there is part of us <laughs> that goes beyond what an animal has. We have a soul, we have a conscience. Um, both of us have the breath of life. Animals are alive, we're alive. Um, both of us need sustenance to exist. There's a lot we have in common with animals, but we also are an exceptional animal. We are not just animals. And understanding that we were created by God in his image, that sets higher expectations, doesn't it? Okay? Some of you... You're a sports fan, and you have high expectations for your team. And if you're not in the championship game, nay, if you don't win the championship game, your team has not met your expectations. But we have to understand that God has created us in his image, and he has high expectations for us because of that. And if you study through the scriptures, you see many times that our dignity our worth, and how we ought to treat one another is based on the fact that we have all been made in the image of God. Each and every human being has. So what right do we have to treat badly another person who, just like us, was created in the image of God? So there's so much that comes out of that that is so very important. But I will just touch on that in passing. But that is such an important idea. Right? There's a lot of things that we could we could really have spent the entire morning just on these six verses, but we don't have that kind of time, so we're not going to try and do that. Also, and again, I'm saving a lot of the 
the, the creation story of men, there's more to be said in chapter two, and then the, the drama and conflict that we see, that in some ways the first three chapters of Genesis is kind of like a talk, a talk show that's focused on one married couple's issues. <laughs> and we see a lot going on here with Adam and Eve over the, over the next couple of chapters that has implications, of course, for all of us. Because though we are created with high expectations and a nobility that comes from God, we see it doesn't take us very long to fall short of those expectations. So all that is coming in the story. Notice that we are given a responsibility to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And God, uh, we've talked about us being created differently, but also in a position of authority over all creation, over the plant kingdom, over the animal kingdom. All right. Some people think the lion is the, the, the king, but really man is the king. We hunt the lions, don't we? Now, don't put me one-on-one -on -one with the lion. Unless God is closing his mouth like he did for Daniel, it's not going to go well. Uh, unless I have, you know, you know if, I, if, if I'm really good with the gun and I'm fast enough, maybe I can win that fight, right? And those animals don't make guns, right? All those things you see in the commercials and Tom and Jerry cartoons, right? Animals are not as clever as people are, right? We see there's something different about us. But also, this gives us a stewardship of God's creation. God creates everything, but we're responsible for it. So we have um, this. It's not really there in the first verses, but this idea is beginning to be communicated here that we rule over all these things in verse 26. And that, again, in verse 28, rule the fish, the birds, and every creature that crawls on the earth. So there's some responsibility there. We're supposed to be in charge, and when you're in charge, you kind of have to answer for things that happen. Not that if some animal attacks somebody, it's your fault, but that you have to take care of these animals, and you have to manage this creation. That God is taking a step back. He's not gone. He's still present. But he is expecting us to take care of his creation. Okay? I'm not going all environmentalist on you here. But we do realize that this is our world, and if we don't take care of it, who will? So we do have some responsibility, don't we? Understanding when God holds us accountable for what he's given us, which is this entire world. All right? And again, that we're set above the animals, that it's our job to take care of them. Now, the other thing I want to talk about in these verses before we have to go is this, what we see here in verse 29 through 31, that, that God had given the... the Initially, he said, I have given you all these plants to eat. And I don't want anyone to misunderstand these verses in Genesis as saying, well, God told us to be vegetarians. That's not really the point here. And we're going to talk about this because we don't want to misunderstand. Because what we see and understand that things can change. God gives different instructions at different times. And that may be something that you see that is allowed. Like, they're not, it's kind of weird that there's no talk of eating the animals. Now, I will say, at this point, God has just created the animals. And those animal populations, like, what was the command? Multiply. He didn't say, devour all these animals and I'll make more. Right? The animal populations are going to grow and thrive. And everyone's going to eat the plants who, by their seeds, are going to quickly reproduce. Okay, so that's the, the stage right now. It's not until we get to Genesis chapter 9, after the great flood, that God tells Noah, you can now consume animals for food as well as plants. So that's coming later on when the earth is more mature. And after all, Noah does save all those animals and some extras of the clean ones that are appropriate to eat. And as you might recall, isn't what they're allowed to eat and not eat a really big issue in, in the law of Moses, the entire chapter of Leviticus. I'm trying to remember what chapter that is, because I'm sure I have it. Chapter 11 is all about the Jews were told, eat these animals, don't eat these animals. So diet became a really, really big issue to the Jews. Now, they were allowed to eat animals, right? Otherwise, they'd never been a Passover lamb. So understand that even for the Jews in their very restrictive diet, they were not told they had to be vegans. Okay, 
they were allowed to certainly eat animals, and in fact, they had to. They were instructed to. So, but even that set of requirements that God gives the Jews through Moses does not apply to Christians today. Because we understand that through ritual dietary laws and self-discipline, that doesn't really bring us closer to God. And a lot of people get fixated on these sideshows, and it's fine. If there's a certain way you think you want to eat, or that you think you should eat, that's fine. I'm not saying not to be healthy. If you think it's healthier, you want to avoid carbs, or you want to, if you're a vegetarian, that is perfectly fine. But we have to understand, this is one of those areas that we do not have any kind of agenda from God to tell other people how they need to eat. We can make recommendations and we can share our opinion. But there is no official Christian diet. There are things that we could choose to mimic from Old Testament times. We could choose to eat like Daniel. Wasn't there a Daniel diet that Rick Warren came out with? We might think that's a smart way to eat and choose to eat that way. Absolutely. But God has never given us a Christians a moral command to eat a certain way with one exception. God doesn't want us to eat animals that still have the blood in them because that represents their lifeblood. So that is the only thing. But there were issues even in Paul's day where um, food was offered to a false idol and then maybe out of conscience, we ought to decline, not that the food itself was bad, but so that we don't, we're not seen as participating in false worship and encouraging others to worship false gods. But that would be the reason to decline something like that. So when it comes to food, the food itself, we want to understand that. That's just the way God set it up from the beginning, that, that at first they just ate plants. Later on, they also ate animals. And later on, there were dietary laws given to the Jewish people only and that we need to understand those things are in the Bible, but we need to understand the context and the scope of those things. Isn't it true that people always want to bring up just random Bible verses and throw it in their face, and they don't know what the scope and the context of those is sometimes? And sometimes we get swept away with those, those sideshows, as I said. So let's take a look at this. Um, the reference here. I think it's different. I think I have. I think I was busy eating shrimp yesterday instead of making sure all these headers were right. <laughs> but um, this is supposed to be Romans chapter 14, verse 1 through 4. And what's funny is all those other verses are correct. I just adopted the main one. Yeah? But if you look at Romans, and I want to hit Romans chapter um, 14 a couple times today, just to put this and uh, make a connection to you to this as, as he's talking about all these things that we could eat. Here's what Paul had to say in Romans 14. This is the ESV version. As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Notice the word there, opinions, not edicts from God, not God's commands, just personal opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. So understanding that people have different ideas about what they think a healthy diet should be. And you, need, you should listen to one another and at the end of the day, agree to disagree, because that's a matter of opinion. There's not one right way to eat, okay? So if you want to go out and have some fried chicken today, you do that. Understand there may be some effects on your body from eating that fried chicken, but you go into it with your eyes wide open, okay? And you make what you think is the best decision for you. But nobody got holy by eating fried chicken or avoiding it, Okay? Eating is something God's given us for our sustenance, and he provided that in many ways. And so let's not let that distract us from the main thing, which is God has called us to be noble and good and obey his commands. And eating is just something we all have to do to survive. So with that, we see life is sustained on the sixth day. God makes us, and he has already made a system where we could live our lives 
We have sunlight, we have food, there are plants, there's water we need to drink. And God is the one who sustains us every day. Isn't God our great provider? He's the Lord who provides. He's been there from the beginning. He made this world to provide everything you need. And remember, doesn't he feed the sparrows? Doesn't he count the hairs on our head? That same God who hovered over the waters is here to sustain us through our life. He made us in his image. He's called us to represent him, and he will sustain us even through uncertain days. Even as we maybe get a little less independent, and even as we potentially have health struggles from time to time, he is the one sustaining us. Lean on him. He is our sustainer. And then on the seventh day, we'll keep this brief. We see that God who made a world that was very good takes note of that here in chapter 2 in our account. A world that started, anyway, perfect. Here's what it says, just the first three verses of chapter 2. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. And so God rests on the seventh day, and as we know, he's going to call the Israelites, the Jewish people, to also rest on the seventh day. And the seventh day was a very important issue in Jewish life. There were times when the Jews totally disregarded it and made God very angry, and they had to suffer the price of that. They lost God's blessing. But understand this. God did not give the Sabbath day to be a burden, but he gave it to be a what? A blessing. God blessed the seventh day. And this so much reminds me of what we see in Mark, I think it's Mark chapter 12. I'll look that up in a minute and confirm. In that account, you remember, as we have and other studies talked about, there was constant friction between Jesus and the religious leaders about the Sabbath day. Because in Jesus' day, they had gone from one extreme to the other, making sure they did not get sent out of their land for not observing the Sabbath day. They observed it obsessively to the point where they had the list of, here's 700 things you cannot do on the Sabbath day because that is considered to be work, and we don't work on the Sabbath day. And they were very strict about this, to the point where when Jesus wanted to help somebody on the Sabbath day, it became an issue. And I think he did that sometimes on purpose, because he wanted to show them that their allegiance to man-made rules and interpretations was not the same as following God. And they had lost the spirit of the Sabbath day. What did God primarily do on his seventh day? What's the only thing he did? Rest. My Bible says that, that rest, word rest is, is the same word used as cease. So he ceased. He ceased. He just stopped. He took a union break. Done. It was God. It was the first union. It was God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, and they took a break on day seven. But the lesson here is if we were created in God's image and we are to follow God's example and be his representative, that God was showing us it's okay to rest. And in fact, just like we need the light, just like we need the water and food, we need rest. And there's times we need more rest than others. And I know some of you, you get sick, and your family can barely keep you in that bed. You want to get up and do stuff. But there are times that we have to rest, and we have to accept those seasons in our life, as hard as it may be for some of us to do so. And here, God is saying, I want rest to be a part of my creation. There is a time to work, and there is a time to rest. And God wasn't giving us that to be mean and say, you can't do all the things you want on this day. You just got to sit home and maybe go to church. <laughs> God was giving that as a blessing. God always intended rest to be a blessing. And in a culture of workaholics, I think sometimes 
we just kind of miss out on that blessing because we get so busy. Well, God was busy for six days, and even he took a rest. Wow, there's a message there. Here's what Jesus said. Let me make sure I have that right chapter number. Oh, it's Mark chapter 2. I thought, now nah, it can't be that early, but it really was. I thought it was 12 or something, but it's 2. And Jesus is going through the grain fields, and, and they're getting on him. And at the very end of Mark chapter 2, Jesus says to these Pharisees who are getting on his disciples because they're picking they're picking plucks of grain just to snack on while they're walking through the field. They're not harvesting, but according to their strict rules, that was not okay on the Sabbath day. You can't harvest on the Sabbath day. I just took a piece of grain. You can't do that. That's harvesting. And Jesus says to them at the end of this discussion, as he talks about some things that David did, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So often we get it backwards. We take what God has done for us, and we try to serve the rule instead of appreciating that God has made an allowance for us. Rest is for us, not so that we might be goody two-shoes and think we're better than somebody else. The Sabbath day was always because we need a break sometimes. And God wanted to bless us with rest. Do not feel guilty when you need to rest, when you need a break, it's okay. Another season of busyness may come soon enough. As we come on the holidays, let me challenge you. Are you entering a season of rest or a season of stress? Let me tell you what God wants Christmas to be for you. He wants it to be a blessing of rest. What have we turned this season into? God wants us to enjoy a rest. In fact, the idea of a Sabbath rest carries its way all the way, all the, way to the book of Hebrews. I'm talking about our salvation, our relationship with Christ, that we have entered a Sabbath of rest. You know why? Because my works were not righteous enough for me to be approved by God. So I have to rest in Christ's finished work and trust in him to be the basis of my peace with God. And if I can't save myself, then why am I so busy doing all these things like God's going to love me more because of the things I did? No, I need to rest in the fact that God loves me, that God has provided for me. God wants us to enjoy his presence and rest and reflect on all the good in our life, like God was reflecting on the good of his creation. And that's what he did, and he invites us to do. And as we reflect on all the good that God has done, and gratitude wells up in our souls, maybe we find what holiday really should be all about. It should be about worshiping God for the good thing he's done instead of getting distracted by all the nitpicky little details that are annoying us. And the to-do list that never seems to get short enough. And all the challenges that we have to face. What if we just remembered that God is good and rested in him? Yeah, we don't follow the Sabbath day anymore. In fact, there's a lot of ways you can serve God. And let's talk about it going back to Romans 14, picking up in verse 5, where we just were. Paul goes on to say, one person esteems one day better than another. Maybe they think the Sabbath day is a special day, and they're observing it like the Jews did. Another day esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. You see what Paul is saying here? He's saying, we're Christians, we're not under the law of Moses. And if you want to continue to esteem the Sabbath day, which remember, technically that's Saturday, Christians we worship on Sunday. And you know what? If you think Saturday is your special day of rest and worship, or you think Sunday is your special day of rest and worship, or you just worship God every day of the week, it's okay. As long as you rest in him. And acknowledge God in your life. You can do it either way and God will be glorified. Whether you glorify him more on one day of the week or you just make an effort to glorify him every day of the week. But don't forget to rest. So the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. What's the idea here? Everything you do, verse 8, for if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, 
we are the Lord's. Just make God first. Don't ever make your own personal opinions and preferences first. Because as Christians, we have freedom, we have liberty. And that liberty is so that we can just serve God every day. So don't ever make things like diet or days of the week something to argue about or insist on your way. You take the grace that God has given you and the world that God has created, and you serve him as you see fit, as best you can, during seasons of busyness and rest, times of worship, times of, of whatever comes our way. That's what God's called us to do. He's given us every day of the week, hasn't he? So you decide if you want to make one day more special than another and just worship him, appreciating what God has done for us. Because that's what's really all about. God loves you. God created this world for you. God sustains us through every day. And God has given us permission and the need for rest. So keep that in mind as we serve him. Let me leave you with this. Matthew chapter 11. Remember these verses? Didn't know you are going to get so much New Testament today, did you? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. What's he promised to do? Isn't that why Jesus came? He came to give you rest. You rest in him. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. If life is hard, maybe you just need to take another approach. Give yourself permission to rest. Blessing is shared on the seventh day. God created this world to bless us. Don't miss out on the blessing of the world he's created. Light is shine. Life is sustained. Blessing is shared. And that's, to me, the biggest takeaways from the beginning of the story. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for all that you do in our lives. We thank you for this world that you've created for us, and you've just set us loose on it to have families and children and grandchildren and to work until we retire and to enjoy times of health and times of and struggle through times of sickness. But Lord, you sustain us through all of us. You have every morning the sun rises and we know that you are sustaining this world and you are only a prayer away. You're still present with us. In fact, as Christians, you live in our heart and we feel your Holy Spirit who leads us to make choices befitting children of life. Help us, Lord, to find our rest in you and to celebrate you and to worship you and to by our relationship with you and growing in your grace to reflect your expectations for us. May we be filled with the goodness that you filled our creation with when you made this world. And may we remember that we're your representatives. Bless us now in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Scott. Yeah, I've been thinking about that number. I think octillion. How does that sound? Octillion. You do have eight sets of zeros up here. But I think it might be off by one. We'll have to look it up. That'll be homework. What's a one followed by 24 zeros? It's a big number. It's a big creation.